back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 70, where we go back, back to the, the past, past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and from the clattering of hooves on your roof. Mm-hmm. Very special... Uh, Christmas holiday episode here, Chris. I think this is the first one we've done, although I think this is the is. second Christmas that we've been recording. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we've, all, we've only been able to coordinate our uh, recordings to the calendar recently, folks, so it's uh, <laughs> it's been a learning process. But we have, I think, I think a very well-known uh, comic book that we're doing today, definitely one that I remember reading as mm-hmm. a kid. And uh, let, let them know what we're doing here. We're going to be unwrapping Christmas with the Superheroes number one from 1988. Now, this is a collection of six holiday tales, which were written by Denny O'Neill, Len Wein, Bob Haney, Paul Levitz, E. Nelson Bridwell, and Mike Friedrich, with pencils by Frank Miller, Dick Dillon, Nick Cardi, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Kurt Swan, and Neil Adams, with inks by Steve Mitchell, Dick Giordano, and Murphy Anderson. Letters by Ben Oda, because he's the only one credited. (laughs) There are some that don't have credits for it. Uh, Coloring by Glenn Whitmore, Helen Vesic, and Jerry Serpy, and was edited by Len Wein and Julia Schwartz. This bugger came with a cover price of $2.95 USD, which back in 1988 was nothing to scoff at. That was nothing to sneeze at, the average price of a comic. Was it one twenty-five or a bucket? I think stuff? it was still 75 cents. Still 75 cents, yeah. so this was huge. But it is well oversized, has even like oh, a, little, it's massive. a little spine on it. You know, it's like a, a thick magazine, sort of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm surprised they had all as many credits as they do. Some of these stories reach back quite a while. Before Certainly. they really credited, you know, a lot of the uh, anybody at all. So uh, it's a it's a cool book. We're, I'm looking forward to jumping into it. But of course, first we got to handle all these creators and do a little bio. A lot of them. I'm going to. Uh, we're going to say right now these are severely truncated Certainly. versions of all these. If if we gave all these guys a full treatment, then that's really all we'd have room for this episode. Definitely, we wouldn't have time to do a New Year's episode. It's, still be that's talking. right. Uh, <laughs> These guys are definitely, uh, you know, all most or all of them deserve a much more expanded look. And we've given a lot of them some expanded Certainly. looks. But uh, just want to let you know, these are shortened versions, short and sweet, right down to just the comic stuff. And we're going to start with Denny O'Neill, born May 3rd, 1939. Graduated from St. Louis University in the early 1960s. He earned degrees in creative writing, English, and philosophy. Joined the Navy after that, and then Roy Thomas enticed him to take over my... Take Marvel's writing test. This involved adding dialogue to a wordless four-page excerpt of a Fantastic Four comic. Stan Lee was impressed with that, gave him a job, and O'Neill had never considered writing for comics before. Later said he'd done the test as kind of a joke. Uh, He had had a couple of hours on Tuesday afternoon, so instead of doing crossword puzzles, I did the writer's test. And it worked out well for him because he took over the reins of the uh, short term of for a short term run on Doctor Strange stories in Strange Tales. He penned six issues; those were 145 through 149, uh, June through October 1966. Uh, He also scripted the final 13 pages of Daredevil number 18, uh, cover dated July 1966, with art by John Romita Sr. Over a plot by Lee when Lee went on vacation. Uh, 
the available jobs writing for Marvel petered out fairly quickly, and O'Neill took a job with Charlton Comics. But he did so under a pseudonym, and that pseudonym was Sergius O'Shaughnessy. No one would ever, uh, you know, you know, think of the Sergius O'Shaughnessy as being a pseudonym, right? It's right. A great, such a normal name. <laughs> yes, couldn't be Bob Smith. No. Sergius. But uh, <laughs> while at Charlton, he received regular work for a year and a half uh, from Charlton's editor, then editor uh, Dick Giordano. Uh, then in 1968, Giordano was hired as an editor for DC, and he would take a lot of the Charlton crew with him, including Danny O'Neill. That's right. His first assignment at DC was to write for the new Steve Ditko created character, The Creeper, in Beware the Creeper, number one through six. That was June 1968 through 1969, cover dates. Uh, not all of that drawn by Ditko, right? Was wasn't he? Didn't he jump off after the first? I cup? think he jumped off, yeah. But uh, you know, he he was definitely on at least the first, if not the first, couple of issues. Sure. Uh, Dennis was then asked to revamp Wonder Woman, beginning with Wonder Woman number one seventy eight. That was October nineteen sixty eight, cover drawn by Mike Sikowski. In this, he famously depowered Diana Prince and made her a karate shopping super spy. If that wasn't good enough, he had a stereotypically Asian mentor named Ai Ching. That change mm-hmm. didn't stick. Don't worry about it. Uh, he wrote the Hard Traveling Heroes opening arc in Green Lantern, Green Arrow, beginning issue 76. That was an April 1970 cover. Most of this was drawn by Neil Adams. It would include a famous arc in Green Lantern 85 through 86. That was August to November 1972, titled Snowbirds Don't Fly, where Green Arrow's sidekick Speedy is revealed to be a heroin addict. As a result of his work on Green Lantern and Green Arrow, O'Neill recounted, I went from total obscurity to seeing my name featured in the New York Times and being invited to do talk shows. It's by no means an unmixed blessing. That messed up my that messed up my head pretty thoroughly for a couple of years. Deteriorating marriage, bad habits, deteriorating relationships with human beings, with anything that wasn't a typewriter. In fact, it was a bad few years there. Mm-hmm. Editor Julia Schwartz tasked O'Neill with revamping Batman to be further away from the Bill Dozier produced Batman TV show of the 1960s. So take him away from that campy, colorful stuff and then return him to his darker, more noir roots. Yeah. Uh, now, this fairly sustained run began with Detective Comics issue 395 back in January 1970 cover with art by Neil Adams. Uh, between issues of Detective and Batman and a couple of issues of Batman Family at the end of the 70s, Denny O'Neill wrote over three dozen issues that de- that, that decade. Uh, now, O'Neill co-created two long-lasting characters in this time, uh, Dr. Leslie Tompkins and Raz al Ghul. Yeah, who figures in all the time nowadays. He certainly does. <laughs> when Julius Schwartz became the editor of Superman with issue 233, January 1971 cover, he had O'Neill and Kurt Swan streamline the Superman mythos, starting with the elimination of Kryptonite, and we talk about that in episode number six of the Cosmic Treadmill, a a uh, arc that it called Kryptonite Nevermore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis O'Neill returned to Marvel in 1980 and scripted Amazing Spider-Man, Daredevil, and Iron Man, among other things. And then he returned to DC Comics in 1986 to become the editor of the Batman titles, where he stayed until 2000. Mm. But in that time, before 2000, he contributed to this anthology. Certainly. Uh, across the desk from him, Frank Miller, a guy we've talked about 
once or twice before, uh, and probably will once or twice again. He was uh, born January 27th, 1957, in Olney, Maryland, uh, though he was raised in Montpelier, Vermont. Uh, his first published work was Ought for a Story in Gold Key's Twilight Zone Comics, number 84, from June 1978. Uh, his first credited work was in DC Comics' Weird War Tales, number 64, from June 1978. The story was called Deliver Me from D-Day, with uh, writing by Wyatt Gwyan. Uh, he would also draw a six-pager by Paul Kupperberg, the greatest story never told in the very same issue. Uh, Frank's first work for Marvel Comics was penciling the 17-page story, The Master Assassin of Mars, Part 3. This was in John Carter, Warlord of, War- Warlord of Mars, number 18, from November 1978, with words by Chris Claremont. From here, Frank Miller would be a regular cover and fill-in artist. Yeah, he drew uh, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, number 27 through 28. That's a February through March 1979 cover dates written by Bill Mantlo which included Daredevil as a guest star. Daredevil's solo title wasn't selling very well at this time, but Frank thought the character had great potential as a blind character in a purely visual medium. Frank debuted on Daredevil number 158, May 1979 cover, at the end of a story by Roger McKenzie and inked by Klaus Janssen. However, sales on Daredevil did not improve. Marvel's management continued to discuss cancellation, and Miller himself almost quit the series as he disliked McKenzie's scripts. When Denny O'Neill came on as editor of the series, he recognized Miller's talent in a backup he'd written. So O'Neill fired Roger McKenzie and put Frank on as the writer-artist of Daredevil. Now, his first solo issue of Daredevil was number 168 from January 1981. And sales rose so swiftly that Marvel once again began, once again began publishing, uh, once again, <laughs> began publishing Daredevil monthly because it was uh, bi-monthly before that. Mm-hmm. And that uh, monthly run started with issue 171, just three issues after Miller came on as writer. Uh, he would finish his first Daredevil run with issue 191, February 1983, Covet It, in a winter 1983 interview, Frank said this was the issue that he was most proud of. Now, by the end of Frank's time on Daredevil, it was Marvel's most popular solo character title. Absolutely, and his cachet rose quite a bit. His uh, first shot at Batman was drawing a a short Christmas story. Wanted, Santa Claus, Dead or Alive, written by Dennis O'Neill for DC Special Series number 21. That was spring 1980. Miller returned to Daredevil with issue 219, a June 1985 cover, penciled by John Buscema. In 1986, DC Comics released the four-issue prestige miniseries, The Dark Knight Returns, written and drawn by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Janssen and colored by Lynn Farley, and you might have heard of that one. Mm. Frank, wrote and, uh, Frank wrote and David Mazzucchelli produced the seven-issue arc Daredevil, born again in Daredevil 227 to 233, February through August 1986 cover dates. Now, Miller would team up with Mazzuccelli again for DC Comics and editor Denny O'Neill. This would be in 1987 for Batman issues 404 through 407. Those were the February through May issues. And this was a story called Batman Year One. Uh, It was originally pitched as an original graphic novel. O'Neill suggested uh, that they instead do it in the regular Batman comic, and uh, that way payments would come much sooner. Um, and then uh, that same wanted Santa Claus Dead or Alive story would appear in Christmas with the Superheroes number one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, jumping ahead quite a bit, on July 10th, 2015, at the San Diego Comic-Con, Miller would be inducted into the Eisner Awards Hall of Fame. Yeah, and, you know, there's 
much more to say about him, but we could sure. leave it there for now. <laughs> Len Wein, born June 12, 1948, in New York City. He was a sickly kid and in and out of hospitals, and that's where he would cultivate his comic book fandom, had a lot of time to sit and read. After he and friend Marv Wolfman visited the DC Comics office weekly for several months, DC editor Joe Orlando hired both Wolfman and Ween as freelance writers. Ween's first professional comics story was Eye of the Beholder in DC's Teen Titans number 18, December 1968 cover date. Len Ween also found work writing for Skywald Publications Horror Comics magazines, Nightmare and Psycho, and for Gold Key's Boris Karloff Tales of Mystery, the toy line tie-in Microbots, and the TV series tie-ins Star Trek and The Twilight Zone. Ween's first superhero work for Marvel was a one-off story in Daredevil number 71, December 1970 cover, co-written with staff writer-editor Roy Thomas and drawn by Gene Colan. The story is called If Thy If An I Offend Thee. Thomas is the only one getting the writing credit, though, in that one. Uh, Rowene and artist Bernie Wrightson created the horror character Swamp Thing in The House of Secrets number 92, July 1971 cover. And this spun off into a series lasting from 1972 to, from, from 1972 to 1976, at least the first volume. Certainly. And then in the fall of 1972, Wayne and writers Jerry Conway and Steve Englehart crafted an unofficial crossover between Marvel and DC. Now, each comic in this crossover featured Englehart, Conway, and Ween, as well as Ween's first wife, Glynis, interacting with Marvel or DC characters at the Rutland Halloween Parade in Rutland, Vermont. Now, this began in Marvel's Amazing Adventures number 16, and the story would continue in Justice League of America number 103, and then it would conclude back at Marvel in Thor number 207. In uh, 1975, Ween, along with artist Dave Cockrum, revived the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby mutant superhero team, the X-Men, after a half-decade's hiatus, uh, reformatting the membership in Giant Size X-Men number one that had a May 1975 cover date. Uh, The two created Colossus and Thunderbird for the series. Uh, Also, you might know Wolverine joined uh, around this time. Oh, yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, he's he's been around. (laughs) Uh, Of interest, uh, Nightcrawler and Storm were reworked character designs Cockrum intended to put in the Legion of Superheroes uh, mythos. Yeah, I always always like to think of you know, what they would have looked like well, might have been, on yeah. the other side. But uh, anyway, uh, not that they, they don't have similar characters on the Legion anyway, uh, sure. as far as I know it. Uh, at the end of the 1970s, following a dispute with Marvel management, Len Wein returned to DC as a writer and editor. As editor, he worked on the first 12-issue limited series Camelot 3000 and such successful series as the new Teen Titans, All-Star Squadron, Batman and the Outsiders, Who's Who in the DC Universe, and Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons acclaimed and highly influential Watchmen. He passed away September 10th this year, 2017, in Los Angeles. Yes. Uh, Dick Dillon, uh, Richard Allen Dillon, was born December 17th, uh, 1928, in Watertown, New York. Uh, following his military service with the 8th U.S. Army, Dillon became an art student at Syracuse University on the GI Bill. Uh, not long after 1948, when he married his wife, Estrella, or Estrella, oh no, it's Estella. Estella. Ugh. Yeah, what am I talking Could about? Could even be Estella. Uh, I'm not sure. I couldn't tell yes. you. Uh, now, he, uh, after, after marrying his wife, he left his job at Watertown Manufacturer of Air Brakes for Trains and went to, so- to seek a career in art in New York City. Within six months, he was getting steady work from Fawcett Comics and Fiction House. 
And so he relocated the family to Peekskill, New York, which was uh, quite a bit closer to the city than Watertown. Sure. Uh, now, Dylan's audit force it on features including Lance O'Casey and Ibis the Invincible in Wiz Comics and Fiction House uh, works like Buzz Bennett and Space Rangers. This would lead to drawing for quality comics beginning in 1952. While there, he worked on the war titles Blackhawks and G.I. Combat, as well as some romance comics. Now, when Quality went out of business in December 1956, which is why uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners don't know what these things are he was working on, Yes. Uh, Dylan, searching for new work, eventually tried DC Comics. This is where he saw one or more, issue, one or more issues of Black Hawk on the desk as he was being interviewed, and to his relief was told, we've been trying to get in touch with you. Dylan returned to Black Hawk, now a DC property, and when the book's initial run ended, went on to draw a few titles before being assigned to draw Justice League of America, beginning with number 64, August 1968 cover date, written by Gardner Fox. He had completed the first two and a half pages of number 184, 1980, when he, October 1980, when he had died. Penciler George Perez and inkler Fra- inker Frank McLaughlin took over the title, starting that issue from scratch. In the late 19th, so he, that's how long he drew JLA is the point. Yes. Uh, not not only him, but a lot of him. Mostly him, yeah. Mostly him, yeah. In the in late 1972, Dylan drew the DC chapter of a metafictional, unofficial crossover crafted by writers Ween, Steve Engelhart, and Jerry Conway, which we just talked about, spanning titles from both major comics companies, and we just mentioned that. But what I, what I like about this whole thing is all the people on this book they all share stories. It's so comics. interlocked, yeah. And it's, 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 I think it's both a show how small the industry is in general mm-hmm. and just how, like, you know, without, you know, getting dirty about it, but incestuous, how, you know, yes. you know you're, you're nice to one guy at quality. That's how you got your job at Marvel. You know, you made someone mad at Charlton. Well, you're not ever going to work. You're not going to get hired here, yeah. But uh, anyway, it's like you just keep hearing these same names and we're going to be, you know, reading their stories in a little while. Uh, he did pass away though, March first, nineteen eighty. Yeah, that was he. I think it was a three-part Justice League story, and he did the first two, and that's when Perez had to come in and take over. So wow! It's, so the uh, third is uh, is was is the Perez one. Yeah, amazing. Now our next writer, we have Bob Haney, an old favorite of ours here. Haney, Haney, uh, yep. Indeed, um, born March fifteenth, nineteen twenty-six, passed away November twenty-fifth, two thousand four. He grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Served during World War II as part of the Navy. He saw action during the Battle of Okinawa. Uh, returned to the States and earned his master's degree from Columbia University. His first published work was College for Murder, a story that saw print in Harvey Comics' Black Cat Number no. 9, cover dated January 1948. Uh, he would bounce from publishing house to publishing house during the 50s uh, before winding up at National, you know, DC Comics, where he would work on war titles like Our Army at War and GI Combat. He would create characters such as Eclipso, the in-house of Secrets number 61, August 1963, drawn by Lee Elias, and Metamorpho in The Brave and the Bold number 57, January 1965 cover, drawn by Ramona Frayden. In 1964, he created a team out of teen sidekicks, whether they existed or not, in The Brave and the Bold number 54, July 1964, drawn by Bruno Premiani. And you might know those teen psychics as a certain Titans. Mm. Uh, in the years that followed, he wrote many issues of The Brave and the Bold, often featuring situations and character team-ups that would have been impossible in the DC Universe, or disregarded or even contradicted established continuity. He most often cited, the most often cited is Batman teaming up with Wildcat 
just because he wanted Haney wanted Batman to come up with Wildcat. There's no real reason for it. Just thought they would be cool. And that is a cool duo, but it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. But you know, he also wrote you know Super Sons and other crazy things. Certainly now, because of all the confusion that he caused, many of Zany Hayden's stories were said to have occurred on Earth B. There's the B for Bob. Um, it's also said if you were a DC Comics writer and you were to receive a Bible of the seemingly infinite Earths, among them would be Earth B. Uh, and if Wikipedia is to be believed, and we have no reason to doubt them, sure. Haney's brother-in-law was Ned Chase. The father of Chevy Chase. Look at that. Uncle Bob, as, uh, Uncle as, Bob. as Chevy liked to call him. Yeah, I wonder if he showed up at a Christmas vacation. There. <laughs> uh, he was the one with the with the pipe or right. the, the, the cigar. Yep. Uh, now, his, his final work was published post post. How do you say that word? Posthumously. There's the word. (laughs) This would come out in March of 2008. This would be the Teen Titans Lost Annual Number 1, which, if you haven't read it, track it down. It is pretty wild. Uh, Now, he won the Alley Award in 1968 for Track of the Hook, the story that appeared in Brave and the Bold Number 79, and he would also win the Inkpot Award in 1997. Nice. Uh, here's Here's a figure that looms large. Nick Cardi was born Nicholas Viscardi. Born October 1920, 19, uh, October 20, 1920, in New York. At a very young age, Nick provided artwork for the Boys Club of America and attended the Art Students League of New York, studying life drawing. Cardi entered the comics field working for Eisner and Iger Studios. This was a package of providing content to the many comics publishers that appeared at the very beginning. This would have had to be like 3940. Sure. Besides working on Fight Comics, Jungle Comics, Conga Comics, and Wings for Fiction House Publications, Nick also wrote and drew the four-page backup feature Lady Luck and Will Eisner's 16-page newspaper Sunday supplement comic book colloquially called The Spirit Section, because it featured his character, The Spirit. Though his Lady Luck stories were credited under the house pseudonym Ford Davis, Viscardi would suddenly work uh, in the initials NV somewhere into each tale. Now, Cardi did uh, World War II military service from uh, 1943 to 1945. While there, he earned two Purple Hearts for uh, wounds suffered as a tank driver in the armored cavalry. Back in civilian life, Cardi began doing advertising art, as well as covers for crossword puzzle magazines, uh, among other periodicals. In 1950, he began drawing the black-and-white daily Tarzan comic strip uh, of writer-artist Bern Hogarth. In 1948, he began his decades-long association with DC Comics, beginning on Gangbusters number 6, was October 1948 cover date, uh, based after a popular radio serial at the time. Nick would stay busy throughout the 50s, picking up whatever work that was available, including seven issues of Congo Bill, which I'm sure were really, really interesting. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was in uh, between 1954 and 1955. He was very proud of that work, I'm sure. Everyone loves oh, to boy. read Congo Bill. You ever read some of those old Congo Bills? Oh, Lordy, Lordy. You your hands on it, so it's very uh, not great. Very dry. Anyway, uh, from 1962 to 1968, uh, Nick drew the first 39 issues of Aquaman, whose character had previously starred in a back, as a backup feature in Adventure Comics. And all of its covers through the final issue of which was number 56, April 1971 cover date. Cardi drew uh, the drew the Teen Titans in Brave and the Bold number 60, July 1965. After being featured in Showcase number 59, this has to be the covers. 
<laughs> yeah, never mind. Uh, Hardy became the primary DC cover artist from the early to mid-1970s. He left the comics industry in the mid-1970s for the more lucrative field of commercial art. There, under the name of Nick Hardy, he did magazine art and ad illustrations, including movie advertising art. This included The Street Fighter, 1974, The Night They Robbed Big Bertha's, 1975, Neil Simon's California Suite, 1978. Stanley Donnan's Movie Movie, 1978. Also, Martin Ritz' Casey Shadow, in 1978. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, a year later, in 1979. Uh, in the early 1980s, Nick Cardi retired, which, you know, in comics means he took whatever jobs he felt like taking when the mood struck. Um, including having his story uh, from 1968 reprinted here. Yeah. Uh, he would pass away November 3rd, 2013. Yeah, so he had a long retirement, which I like. Uh, you don't, sure. That's not the story you hear with a lot of comic <laughs> yes. creators. They, you know, you hear a lot of people uh, dropping off the desk. Fifth or sixth yeah. retirement, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, now talk about Paul Levitz, born October 21st, 1956 in Brooklyn, New York. As a teenager, Paul revived the defunct comic news fanzine, The Comic Reader. According to Levitz, it was the first regularly published comics industry news fanzine. Under Levitz's editorship, The Comic Reader won two Best Fanzine Comic Art Fan Awards. During the course of his research for The Comic Reader, Levitz became well-known in the offices of DC Comics. In December 1972, Redditor Joe Orlando gave him his first freelance work. Initially writing text pages and letter pages, and later working as a per diem assistant editor. And we know how uh, how we love those uh, text pages. Those oh, yes. Are... Everyone reads those all the so... time. Text work. <laughs> Paul's first published work was in Aquaman number 35. This is August 1967 cover, drawn by Nick Cardi. Uh, Bob Haney, though, is credited as writer. Um, now, after serving as Joe Orlando's assistant editor in 1976, Levitz fulfilled a lifelong dream, in his words, by becoming the editor of Adventure Comics on the eve of his 20th birthday. So that's uh, very young to be an editor. Oh, oh yeah. You know? Well, maybe not these days. No. Uh, in 1978, he would succeed Julius Schwartz as the editor of the Batman line of comics. Uh, Levitz is best known for his work on Legion of Superheroes, which he wrote from 1977 through 1979, then again from 1981 through 1989. Uh, he would also have multiple runs with them in the 2000s. Uh, Levitz wrote uh, All New Collector's Edition uh, number C55 in 1978, which was a treasury-sized special drawn by Mike Grell. In it, Legion members Saturn Girl and Lightning Lad tied the knot. He wrote the Justice Society series in All-Star Comics during the late 1970s and co-created the Earth 2 Huntress with artist Joe Stanton. Staten, sorry. Uh, Levitz eventually became an editor and served as vice president and executive vice president before assuming the role of president of DC Comics in 2002, uh, which is pretty incredible when you consider, you know, we, sure. where he came from. But he also, he also contributed a story to this Christmas anthology. Mm-hmm. Now, across the table from him was uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. He was born March 26, 1948, in Pontevedra, Spain, though he grew up in Argentina. Uh, during the 1960s, Garcia Lopez worked for Charlton Comics, primarily on romance titles. In 1974, he would move to New York, and that's where he met DC Comics editor, a man we've mentioned several times already, mm-hmm. Joe Orlando. Uh, his first work for DC was inking a backup in Action Comics issue 448 from uh, June 1975, uh, written by Martin Pascal with arts by Dick Dillon. 
Uh, Jose's first penciling work would be on Detective Comics issue 452. That would cover date October 1975 on a backup written by E. Nelson Bridwell. This very, very incestuous. I know. It's all the same people. The same. I mean, you know, it is the same the era. But, web. Yes. Uh, through the 1970s and 80s, Jose would pencil nearly every character for DC Comics, notably launching a Jonah Hex ongoing in 1977 with Michael Fleischer. And DC Comics Presents, which was a Superman team-up title with Martin Pasco in 1978. That was like Superman's answer to Brave and the Bold. Yeah. Uh, he penciled five issues of the new Teen Titans in 1985, and writer Marv Wolfman later commented that, I knew that I had this incredible artist who could draw almost anything that I wanted, so I decided to make the story just the biggest spectacle I could come up with. Uh, this is the fellow normally working with George Perez, mind you, so he wasn't like he had... You know, switch gears from somebody crummy, but I just... This was high praise. It really is, yeah. Now, during his exclusive contract with DC Comics, he's been responsible for penciling the style guides used by the company to provide official artwork for merchandise licenses around the world, which is why his versions of these characters often look like the correct one. This is the one that you see on the lunchboxes and on the sweaters. We actually talked Um, about that, like, last week, too. We were saying, like... I think so, yeah. You know, we always think of his as somehow being the... Best Superman, but it's really mm-hmm. because I probably saw it the most uh, through our childhood. <laughs> it's the one that's so ingrained in yeah. us. Uh, and he would provide art for one of the one of the stories in this oversized comic. And now we're going to talk about somebody else from the uh, Earth B, Edward Nelson yes. Bridwell, born on September 22, 1931, in Sapo- Sapopa, Oklahoma. Sapopa. <laughs> <laughs> he, credit, he credited his fame to his third grade teacher, Ryan Samuel, for interest, interesting him in comics. His first published work consisted of a text page and adventures into the unknown number nine, February through March 1950, cover date published by the American Comics Group. After writing a few stories for Mad and for Katie Keene, Bridwell began working for DC Comics in 1965 as an assistant to editor Mort Weisinger. Bridwell was one of the first comics fans hired in the industry after the long, bleak 1950s. He would eventually become editor of Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, and Superman Family. Jim Shooter recalls that Weisinger did not always treat his assistant well, saying that his assistant was Nelson Bridwell, and boy, he tortured Nelson. He was just awful to Nelson. He seems like he was awful to a lot of We've people. We've heard that for a lot about Mort Weisinger. <laughs> yeah, a lot of mean things. Indeed. Uh, now, Bridwell also created the Inferior Five. They, they, that's uh, soon to be everybody's favorite team. Uh, <laughs> they, they debuted in Showcase Number 62. This is May, June 1966 cover date uh, with art by Joe Orlando. Bridwell said, Jack Miller came up with the idea of a group of incompetent heroes, and at first he came up with the title The Inferior Four. When I created five heroes, he changed it to The Inferior Five. I completely created the heroes as a clown set, and Joe Orlando created the costumes. Good naming reasons, though. I like that. You add another hero, let's yeah. make it the inferior five. Good thing he didn't make two. That's right. That would have really been <laughs> a complex. Uh, in recalling an early interest in comic book continuity, Bridwell remembered getting a bit perturbed at times when I was a kid by having things that didn't fit. Bridwell's love and knowledge of old comics led to his becoming an editor on numerous reprint books, including digests, giant-sized comics, and hardcover anthologies. He also worked as assistant editor Julius Schwartz, keeping track of continuity between the numerous Superman titles that were published. E. Nelson Bridwell continued working as a writer for DC through the 1980s before passing away from lung cancer on January 23rd, 1987. 
Uh, we've got Kurt Swan, Douglas Curtis Swan. He was born February 17th, 1920. His father was a railroad, railroad worker, and his family moved around during Kurt's childhood. Uh, he would enlist in Minnesota's National Guard, 135th Regiment, 34th Division, in uh, 1940, and Swan would be sent to Europe as part of Allied support. Uh, Swan spent most of World War II working as an artist for the GI magazine Stars and Stripes. While at Stars and Stripes, Swan met writer France Heron, who eventually directed him to DC Comics. Now, apart from a few months of night classes at the Pratt Institute under the GI Bill, Swan was entirely self-taught as an artist. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, now, shortly after returning to civilian life, this would be 1945, he and his new wife moved from Minnesota to New Jersey, and began. he began working for DC Comics. Uh, after a stint on Boy Commandos, he began to just pencil pages, leaving the inking to others. Initially, Swan drew many different features, including Tommy Tomorrow and Gangbusters, but slowly he began gravitating toward the Superman line of books. His first job penciling the iconic character was for Superman number 51. That was March-April cover date, 1948. Richard says that Swan began penciling the Superboy series with its fifth issue in 1949, but it went uncredited, of course, so it's not, no one's positive. Most of them did, yeah. Exactly. All of them did, All of them I think, did yeah. pretty, you know, at least for DC. Uh, he drew the first comics meeting of Superman and Batman in Superman number 76. That's May to June 1952 cover date. Swan always felt that his breakthrough came when he was assigned the art duties on Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen in 1954. But he did not take to editor to line editor Mort Weisinger's controlling style. Swan discussed this period in an interview. He said, I was getting terrible migraine headaches and had these verbal battles with Mort. So it was emotional, physical. It just drained me and I thought I'd better get out of here before I go wacko. After leaving comics for the advertising world in 1951, and this is... A crazy thing. Swan returned for Nationals' <laughs> higher paychecks. Crazy. In 10 years, it would be the exact opposite, of folks, <laughs> but that's how it was right then. Uh, that's how big comics were exploding, I think. Uh, as Kurt's biographer notes, the headaches went away after Swan gained Weisinger's respect by standing up to him, although I don't know the uh, details of that. No. Now, in the uh, view of comics historian Les Daniels, Swan became the definitive artist of Superman in the early 1960s with a new look to the character that replaced the uh, the Wayne Boring, cleft chin, angry, yeah. angry father version. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, over the years, Swan was a remarkably consistent and prolific artist, often illustrating two or more titles per month. If you have any Superman titles from that time, he, he pretty much drew it. Guaranteed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and now uh, after DC's uh, 1985 12-issue limited series, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and with the impending 1986 revision of Superman by writer-artist John Byrne, Swan was released from his duties on Superman. Indeed, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow by Kurt and Alan Moore, that took place in Superman number 423 and Action Comics 583 uh, during the cover month of September 1986 was his last incontinuity regular work on the character. Uh, now, one of his stories uh, would be part of this Christmas anthology. Uh, he would pass away June 17th, 1996. Over to Mike Friedrich for the next story, born March 27th, 1949. Uh, most likely in America, I think. Maybe. Uh, Mike Friedrich entered comics professionally after years of writing to DC letter columns in the 1960s and developing a, a male acquaintanceship with the famously responsive editor Julius Schwartz. Friedrich recalled, My letter writing began around the time the new-look Batman 
This was advertised in the cover of Detective Comics 327, May 1964 cover. I was introduced, though I'd been a fan of Julie's for two or three years before then. A couple of years later, it turned into a bit of a correspondence as Julie began to send short replies. Schwartz bought Friedrich's first professional script on May 10, 1967. A 10-page Robin backup story, titled Medicine of the Motorcycle Marauders, eventually published in Batman number 202, June 1968 cover, drawn by Chick Stone. Friedrich used the $10 per page payment to visit the New York City to visit New York City the following month, after his high school graduation, and took a DC Comics tour in order to meet Schwartz in person. Friedrich recalled that first summer he worked with me on a handful of scripts, including the one that was first to be published, the Spectre No. 3, April 1968 cover. Now, Friedrich quickly began uh, writing stories for a number of DC publications, including Challenges of the Unknown, Detective Comics, The Flash, and Teen Titans. His first extended run on the title was on Justice League of America. This would be issues 86 through 99, December 1970 through June 1972 covers. Uh, He moved to Marvel after four years, uh, and Friedrich scripted every issue of Iron Man, uh, except for three of them. This was uh, from issues 48 through 81. July 1972 cover through December 1975 cover. Uh, Other uh, Marvel work includes issues of uh, Captain America, Captain Marvel, The Power of Warlock, Kazar and Astonishing Tales, and Ant-Man and Marvel Feature, as well as the Outlaw Kid. Friedrich's most uh, notable contribution may be his 1970s independently produced anthology series Star Reach. 18 issues were released between 1974 and 1979. He received an Inkpot Award at the 1980 San Diego Comic-Con for Star Reach. Friedrich closed Star Reach as a publisher in 1979, but reopened it as a talent agency in 1982. And uh, he also contributed to this comic book, because that's pretty much where I totally lost track of him. Yes. <laughs> now, sitting across the table from him was a fellow named Neil Adams. Oh. Yes, I might have heard of him. (laughs) He was born June 15th, 1941, on Governor's Island, New York City. At the time, it was a long-held naval outpost. Neil's father was in the military. As a result, the Adams family moved around, and Neil spent much of his childhood in Germany. Uh, He attended the School of Industrial Art High School in Manhattan and would graduate in 1959. Uh, After actually being turned down at DC Comics, Neil sought work at Archie Comics, where he wanted to work on the publisher's fledgling superhero line, which was edited at the time by Joe Simon. At the suggestion of staffers, Adams drew, quote, three or four pages of the superhero The Fly, but uh, he didn't receive encouragement from Simon. In a 2000s interview, Adams said, I started to do samples for Archie, and I left my fly samples there. A couple weeks later, when I came in to show my Archie samples, I noticed that the pages were still there, but the bottom panel was cut off of one of my pages. I said, what happened? They said, one of the artists did this transition where Tommy Troy turns into the fly, and it's not very good. You did this real nice piece, so we'll use that if it's okay. I said, that's great. That's terrific. (laughs) And that panel would run in Adventures of the Fly number four, cover dated January 1960. I wonder if he got like a tenth of a page rate for that. (laughs) Maybe. Flip flip the kid a dime or something. (laughs) After that, Adams began writing, penciling, inking, and lettering humorous full-page and half-page gag fillers for Archie's joke book magazine. Leaving Archie Comics under somewhat unfriendly circumstances, Adams began his comics career in earnest at the NEA Newspaper Syndicate in 1962. Writer Jerry Cap, brother of Little Abner creator Al Cap, invited Adams to draw samples for Cap's proposed Ben Casey comic strip, 
based on the popular television medical drama series. The first daily strip of Ben Casey, which carried Adam's signature, appeared November 26, 1962. A Color Sunday strip was added September 20, 1964. The final comic strip appeared Sunday, July 31, 1966, and the TV show had ended March of that year. While drawing Ben Casey, Adams had continued to do storyboards and other work for ad agencies. He worked as a ghost artist for a few weeks in 1966 on the comic strip Peter Scratch. Adams found work at Warren Publishing's Black and White Horror Comics magazines under editor Archie Goodwin. He debuted there as a penciler and inkler, ink, inker of writer Goodwin's eight-page anthological story, Curse of the Vampire, in Creepy Number 14, April 1967, cover date. Now, with DC War Comics stalwart Joe Kubert now uh, concentrating on the comic strip The Green Berets, Adams, despite his opposition to then-current U.S. military involvement in Vietnam, saw himself an opening. He says, I really didn't like most of the comics at DC, but I did like war comics. So I thought, you know, now that Joe's not working there, they've got Russ Heath, and they are plugging other people in where Joe used to be. Maybe I can kind of shift into a Joe Kubert kind of thing and do some war comics and kind of bash them out quickly. So I went over to see uh, DC Comics uh, war, edit, war Comics editor Bob Kaniger and showed him my stuff. And I did have that feeling that they were missing Joe, a guy who could draw and do that rough action stuff. So he gave me some work. Uh, Adams would make his DC debut as penciler inker of an eight-and-a-half-page story. It's called my, It's My Turn to Die. It was written by Howard Liss, and it would appear in Our Army at War number 182, uh, July 1967 cover date. Now, after being turned down by DC's Batman editor, Julia Schwartz, Neil approached fellow DC editor uh, Murray Boltanoff in hopes of drawing for Boltanoff's Batman team-up title, Brave and the Bold. Uh, Boltanoff instead assigned him to uh, something just like the Brave and the Bold, uh, The Adventures of Jerry Lewis. (laughs) And uh, he would start with uh, issue 101. That was the July-August 1967 cover issue. And its full-length story was called Jerry the (laughs) Estonut. Written by Arnold Drake. Uh, It became the first of a slew of stories and covers Adams would draw for that series. Uh, He would also do uh, some work on The Adventures of Bob Hope. He just can't catch a break at this point. getting typecast. Just getting (laughs) getting batted around and can't get near the uh, stuff that would eventually make him so well-known. Anyway, uh, Adams was was soon assigned his first superhero covers, illustrating Action Comics number 356. That was a November 1967 cover, and the same month, Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 79. Shortly afterward, he drew Batman himself along with the supernatural, supernatural superhero, the Spectre, on the cover of The Brave and the Bold, number 75. That was January 1968 cover date. The first instance of Adams drawing Batman in an interior story was the Superman-Batman Revenge Squads in World's Finest Comics, number 175. That was May 1968 cover. Neil began drawing Dead Man in Strange Adventures number 206 in December 1967, written by Arnold Drake. Uh, Carmen Infantino had drawn Dead Man's debut the issue before, but then stopped doing it. Adams went on to draw both the covers and stories for issues 207 to 216, December 1967 through February 1969 covers, and taken over the scripting with number 212, June 1968. His, this run was included in to the Alley Award Hall of Fame, with Adams himself receiving a special award for the new perspective and dynamic vibrance he had brought to the field of comic art. 
Now, while continuing to freelance for DC, Adams in 1969 also began freelancing across the street at Marvel Comics. And there he would pencil several issues of X-Men, starting with issue number 56. This is the May 1969 cover issue. And one story for a horror anthology title. Uh, Such freelancing across the two leading companies was quite rare at the time. Uh, Most DC creators who did did so would have to do so with a pseudonym. Uh, Adams would recall in 1976... The first time I got away from DC was when I went to Marvel to do the X-Men. It didn't stop me from working at DC. They were a little annoyed at me, but that was a calculated plan. If people saw that I would do such a thing, then other people might do it. Beyond that, it seemed like working for Marvel might be an interesting thing to do. It was, as a matter of fact. I enjoyed working on the X-Men. Uh, the company was more friendly, a lot more real, and I found myself delighting in the company of Herb Trimp, John Romita, and Marie Severin. I found them to be the I found them to be people who were not as oppressed as the people at National War. Uh, while there, he would also contribute to the Kree Scroll War arc of the Avengers. This was issues 93 through 97, uh, cover dated November 1971 through May 1972, uh, with uh, words by Roy Thomas. Now, uh, wanting to pull Batman away, like we said before, from that campy version that's depicted in the Bill Dozier television series. Uh, Julie Schwartz, we said that he'd hired Denny O'Neill, and we also mentioned another name, that was Neil Adams, to bring the character back to its dark origins. Their first two stories were The Secret of the Waiting Graves in Detective Comics 395, January 1970 cover, and Paint a Picture of Peril in issue 397, March 1970, with a short backup Batman backup story written by Mike Friedrich coming in between in Batman number 219, February 1970. O'Neill and Adams' creation, Ra's al Ghul, was introduced in the story Daughter of the Demon in Batman 232, June 1971. We mentioned him, but not the comic before. And rechristening Green Lantern Volume 2 as Green Lantern Green Arrow with issue 76. As we mentioned, O'Neill and Adams teamed these two for a series that we already talked about during O'Neill's bio. <laughs> it's a very, very, very tangled way. It here. really is. <laughs> book, ending, final... book ending, though, these bios of these two guys that work yes. so closely together. <laughs> now, the uh, final complete story that Adams drew at DC before opening his own company, Continuity Associates, was the oversized, uh, what are these things, these treasury-sized uh, Superman yeah, vs. Muhammad Ali in 1978, uh, which Adams has uh, since called a personal favorite. After this, Adams' production for DC and Marvel was mainly limited to uh, new covers for reprint editions of some of his earlier work, such as uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, also the Avengers Kree Scroll War, X-Men Visionaries, the Dead Man Collection, and the Saga of Ra's al Ghul. And his art is included in this Christmas anthology that yes. we're just about to. We are seconds away. We have now <laughs> dispensed with... Uh... All of our creator bios so we can jump right into this Christmassy goodness of a comic. So our first story tonight is, or today, whenever you're listening to this, is Wanted Santa Claus, Dead or Alive by Denny O'Neill and Frank Miller. Originally published in DC Special Series, Superstar Holiday Special Number 21, April 1980 cover date. It's Christmas Eve. Which is the day we're dropping this, and something we're going to be saying quite a bit today. That's true. It is actually Christmas Eve, if you look to the date it came out. And Batman is checking out a nativity scene that is missing its star. Knowing there's likely a bigger fish to fry, he heads off, and a few blocks away, a mobbed-up fellow named Matty Lasko. 
Isn't that that fellow who wears the suit full of question marks? Yeah, the one that says you, uh, government money. That's right. It says that doing what you love is like being on vacation every day. Well, if it's him, he's put on some weight. Let me tell you, he's, yeah. not, he's living high on that uh, government life, living the high life uh, until Batman entered to spoil his fun. He takes down Lasko's men without even breaking a sweat. Then does that thing Superman does, where he lets a bad guy punch him in the belly, often breaking their hand when they do. Matty relents and eventually tells Batman to find a guy named Boomer Katz. Batman heads down to a crime alley soup kitchen where, thankfully, there are plenty of loose lips. Batman disguises himself as a homeless black man to ask around. Yes, uh, Bruce in blackface says, Hey, whatever happened to old Boomer anyway? And then some loose-lipped dude says, You ain't hide! He's got a job as Santa Claus, at least! With the info now in hand, Black Bruce leaves. However, not before handing a random woman an envelope containing 1,000 USD. Hey! (laughs) Yeah, why not? Uh, Over at Lee's, Boomer is being escorted out. It is, after all, his last day as Santa Claus. We learn that he was actually really, really great in the role. In fact, the best Santa that the department store has ever had. And Mr. Jackson thanks him for his service, to which he begins to cry. Outside of Lee's, we learn the real reason Boomer took the job was to disable the store's alarm for some scumbag bad guy. Turns out that Boomer's time in the Santa Togs really changed him, though. He no longer wants to rob the store. Unfortunately for him, however, that train's already left the station. That's right. And uh, by train, we mean gun. And by station, we mean the bad guy's pocket. Mm. Uh, Boomer's forced back inside to do some robbing. Yep. Mr. Jackson goes, forget something, Boomer? Bad guy says, yeah, he forgot something, all right. He forgot to grab the day's receipts. Boomer says, I'm sorry, Mr. Jackson. They forced me. Once inside, Boomer smashes a box of ornaments over the bad guy's head. Unfortunately for him, he brought glass balls to a gunfight. He's repeatedly shot in the back pretty quickly. Mm. Batman arrives on the scene and hurls a miniature Christmas tree at one of the robbers. It's such a really fluid scene, just really well done. Um, Batman searches for Boomer when suddenly the missing star from the nativity scene appears and shines the way. Once Batman finds Boomer, however, it vanishes. A Christmas mm. miracle, Chris. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Well, on the, the, in our next story, it's uh, it starts off with something less than a miracle. Uh, we're going to be reading now is The Man Who Murdered Santa Claus. This is by Len Wein and Dick Dillon. It was originally published in Justice League of America, number 110. This will be the March-April uh, 1974 issue. We open with Batman and Superman meeting up at a local Santa Claus's apartment. And we could probably assume that it's Christmas Eve, right? Because yeah. why not? Most of these stories uh, are, sure. <laughs> sure. Now, this Santa is set to entertain some orphans this evening, which is uh, quite unfortunate because, uh, well, he, he's dead. Oh, that's not very entertaining at all. No, no. no. Well, he's not dead right away, but uh, while he's adjusting his costume, his apartment explodes. Hey. And as you might imagine, that would... <laughs> The world's merriest check out the body and procure from it a key and a note that didn't get exploded. Uh, Now, the note is threatening a uh, neighborhood somewhere in the country, and uh, this makes it a job for the Justice League. Unfortunately, some of their heavy hitters are available for this caper. Uh, The Flash is celebrating Christmas a thousand years in the future. Uh, if you have the ability to travel through time, couldn't you just 
theoretically celebrate Christmas every single day. Oh my, you think about all the presents, boy. Whoa. Sure. That's like my 10-year-old kid dream right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Atom is, of, as usual, exploring a microscopic universe. The Dibneys are busy scuba diving. Mm-hmm. Also, under the sea, Aquaman and Mera are presiding over the Atlantean Festival of Lights. Oh, man, I can't wait for the airing of grievances. That's the, uh, that's the Festivus of Lights. That's a you know, oh, different holiday, yes. yeah. Uh, among the roster who does care enough to carry their communicators, we get Red Tornado, Green Arrow, and Black Canary. Also, Hal Jordan, sort of. Hmm. You see, he was in the middle of taking a shower when the call came in, and as he steps out of the tub, he... <sighs> slips on a bar of soap and knocks himself out. Yes, really. Yes, uh, and his power ring removes itself from his finger, and uh, I promise if it had a head, it would probably be shaking it <laughs> at the KO landing. Uh, it then flies off to find a new finger, finally coming across our old friend, John Stewart. That's right, John says, the Green Lantern regularly scheduled for this time has himself one monumental headache, and you have me in his place. Oliver Queen says, what a miserable way to spend Christmas Eve. So it is. Christmas Eve. Oh, there okay. you go. Nice. Good, good, good. <laughs> now the team puts their heads together. Actually, uh, you know, Batman sort of figures everything out here. <laughs> yeah, he does that. Uh, <laughs> they, they deduce that the imperiled neighborhood is in St. Louis because the note mentioned an arch. You know, like the Gateway Arch. I'm telling you, Chris, we just might be as smart as the world's greatest detective. Copyright trademark. That's right. Uh, now, <laughs> since the team is currently flashless... They need to figure out a quick way to locate the lock for this key. Uh, Stuart hits it with willpower, causing it to vibrate in when it's in the vicinity of its yeah. lock? Um, uh, okay, let's let Red Tornado explain this one. Yeah, Reddy goes, If our stand-in Green Lantern will utilize his power ring to make this key Geiger counter-sensitive to the lock it fits, I will endeavor to serve as Flesh's substitute. John says, Okay then, brother. A little concentrated willpower and zap. You get that key anywhere near the correct lock, and man, you're gonna know it. Yeah, the explanation didn't really help. Didn't did really it? explain much, but it, oh, uh, no. the key will know when it's near the lock somehow. That's all we need. Fair enough. <laughs> Regardless, it does the trick, and it's not long before the league finds the lock in question, attached to a door, which is a good place to find a lock. And the door itself is attached to a rundown tenement building. As the League enters, we see that they are being watched by a phantomy stranger. Mm-hmm. Inside, the team finds themselves falling down a cylindrical pit, where they then find themselves before a miniature sun. Now, here's some really convenient storytelling. <laughs> the yellow sun emits red sun rays. So, this takes out not only Green Lantern, who is, is weak to a yellow impurity, which was still a thing back then, but Superman as well, who was weakened by red sun rays. What's more, it appears that this actually hurts Superman when we thought that sun rays just, you know, nullified his powers. It's not like it's kryptonite, right? Well, I mean, red sun rays from a yellow sun. Okay, Chris, that's the difference. That's what you know, you're missing. Uh, so maybe without his powers, he's just more sensitive to the heat. He's kind of like getting a bad tan hmm. uh, than all of his human, human teammates. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that's it. Yeah. Anyway, Superman uses the last bit of energy and flies into the mini sun, exploding it. And also, apparently, himself. The League mourns the death of Superman for about a panel. Yeah. Get, yeah, you know, they, they do note it <laughs> before continuing into the next room. And that room features a calliope, a poison spew in calliope. Black Canary sings back at the calliope, which allows the rest of the team to escape. Poor Dinah, though, 
appears to be dead. Mm. We again see that the League is being watched. However, this stranger isn't nearly as phantomy. In fact, it's, get this, the key. Hey, he left the key as a clue. What? So Batman's able to do St. Louis from an arch, but not the key from a key? Uh, you think that would be a lot easier? I don't understand. A lot more on the face. Yeah. yeah. Now, anywho, another door opens, leading the remaining league into a room full of giant Christmas balls, which home in on the leaguers, absorbing them. Well, Batman gets absorbed anyway. Ollie acts as a decoy, drawing the orbs near using the heat from some gimmicked arrows, long enough for John and John, Stuart and Smith respectively, to escape into a scene from March of the Wooden Soldiers. <laughs> where they're attacked by wooden soldiers, That's right. but managed to get away. From here, we learn about the key's current lot in life. You see, he was diagnosed as terminally ill while in prison, and so he was released to live out the rest of his days on the outside. Yeah, no, that sounds sort of legit. You know, you take a supervillain with revenge on his mind and absolutely nothing to lose, and then put him on the street, you know, because... What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? And he's yeah. got cancer, therefore he's good. Yes. <laughs> now, just as he's about to celebrate his victory over the Justice League, three doors open. Behind them are the Justice League. But how? I'm glad you asked. The Phantom Stranger. But how did he... No, no, no. Phantom Stranger is the only answer we're getting. Uh, okay. <laughs> now, at this point, the key figures, screw it. I'm blowing up the neighborhood anyway. And so he triggers the bomb and escapes. The League uses the precious few seconds they have left to evacuate the entire city of St. Louis. Luckily, they had a few seconds, or they never would have done it. That's true. Then John surrounds the city with an emerald dome, and the city is exploded with a thram-ram. When the smoke clears, somehow, the city is still standing. But how? I'm glad you asked again. John Stewart used his power ring to rebuild it. But wait, now, isn't that an abuse of power when Hal tried no, to... Oh, no, ne- never, never mind that. Oh, never mind. I guess that happened later on, yeah. Post-crisis. Right, yeah. <laughs> when everything is settled, the Phantom Stranger has already vanished. The League didn't get the opportunity to thank him or invite him to join the team or to slap him around or anything. We wrap mm-hmm. up with a one-page epilogue where Red Tornado is given a brand spanking new costume. It's the one with the arrow on his head and the yellow lines running throughout that is probably most familiar. I don't know if it still applies, but that one's most familiar to me. Me too. Me too. Now that's two down. Yeah. Our third story might just be the main event here. It's the the TT's Swingin' Christmas Carol by Bob Haney and Nick Carney. (laughs) This story originally published in Teen Titans number 13 back in January, February 1968, a comic I finally got. Wow. (laughs) I finally got myself a copy of the original. Now, uh, we open the story at Ebenezer Scrounge's Junkarama, where he's acting all slave drivery to his sole employee. Uh, You guessed it, it's Bob Ratchet. I don't know how many employees you have to have at a junk... uh, Junk-O-Rama? Junk-O-Rama, probably (laughs) one, maybe two, in case he gets sick. Uh, Scrounge says, You want Christmas Day off? Humbug. You'll only waste your time and the good money I pay you. To which Ratchet says, "But, But, sir, everyone celebrates Christmas. I don't. It's all humbug. But I suppose you could have it off, Ratchet, if you keep off, if you keep at those books. 
Come on, Scrounge. He just wants to celebrate the holiday with his son. Hey, that sounds you know, pretty familiar. Tiny Tom. Yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> we, uh... <laughs> anyway, a truck pulls up to the Junkarama, and Scrounge gives the man the boot for the evening. Unfortunately, it just so happens that Tiny Tom, in his ramshackle wheelchair, decided to pay his pop a visit to the office. Uh, with, with Bob already gone, Tom just overhears Scrounge making some shady dealings with the unscrupulous truck drivers. You see, they have a ray that can turn garbage into brand new stuff. I think I've misunderstood recycling this whole time. Yeah, it's uh, apparently all ray-based. Uh, <laughs> Tiny Tom thinks to himself, Wow, they're smugglers, and Dad's boss, Mr. Scrounge, is helping them. I gotta tell Dad, now! And so Tom heads home to spill the beans. Ratchet says, Scrounge mixed up in a crooked racket. That explains why he let me go early. You'd better go to the police, Dad. Well, uh, I think, Tommy, it's better if I talk to Mr. Scrounge first, give him a chance to explain. And so the next day, Bob Ratchet confronts his boss, which goes about as well as you might imagine. He even gets stuck working Christmas Day for his perceived ins- insubordination. That's the way it goes. Yep. <laughs> Now poor Tiny Tom's out of tricks, so he turns to the only folks who might help him, the Teen Titans. The Titans listen to his story and decide to hitch a ride under the bad guy's truck as they head off to their next stop. Uh, how did Tiny Tom like get a hold of the Teen Titans? Were they in the Yellow Pages or something? Maybe they're in the book? I don't know. It's right. weird. Uh, now, th- <laughs> this truck is eventually stopped by a giant of a man who proceeds to wreck stuff from the shadows. The truckers hop back onto the rig and jam, leaving the Titans behind. Trucker says, He's too much! Let's get out of here! We better tell Mr. Big. That snooper interrupted our delivery. Robin instructs the team, Bail out, team! They follow the shadowy man to Mr. Scrounge's rundown old mansion, and Aqualad says, Mumbling mantis, Robin! They're leaving, and we never really saw them switch junk into new stuff! Obvious for true, Gilhead. That lone intruder. Let's follow him. The man pounds on Ebenezer's door, and we learn that he's Jacob Farley, fresh from the clink. Yeah, he's he's pounded. <laughs> Scrounge, open up or I'll break it down. Scrounge says, I, I, please, I'll open it. I'll open it. Jacob Farley, no. No, it's not possible. You aren't real. You're a ghost. I'm real, all right, Scrounge. Real enough to wreck my revenge on you, yo, skinflint. Prepare to meet justice. The Titans burst in before the convict can crush the geezer. We learn that Farley was Scrounge's fall guy for a deal gone wrong. Yeah, Robin goes, Now, since you obviously escaped from prison, you've got some tall explaining to do. I was Scrounge's partner in life, but now I'm as good as dead. A convict, because I took the rap for Scrounge. We sell defective material. Someone was hurt on the job, and I alone was blamed. I don't know the material was bad, but Scrounge had it fixed, so he was in the clear. Scrounge knows his rights, though, and he decides to call the police, I guess. They'd probably hold his word in higher esteem than a fellow who's still wearing prison stripes. Right. Probably, yeah. Uh, Farley splits, and the Titans follow shortly after. Outside, they have a revelation. Which might just be the same revelation that we all had on page one. Yeah. Scrounge says... (laughs) I'm calling the police to come for Harley and toss you titans out of my house. Aqualad says, Mumbling mantis, shouldn't we stop him? Hold it, gang. We've got no choice. He's right. How can we? Farley's a fugitive, 
and we're trespassers. Wonder Girl goes, Hola, speaking of Farley, where is he? He went out that window. Come on, Titans, bug out. Kid Flash goes, He's gone, vanished. Howling wolffish, what a wacko twist. Farley's story, Robin, do you believe him or that nasty old scrounge? I guess we know where Garth's allegiance lies, huh? Well, he likes that money, <laughs> you know? Robin goes, I don't know, but his visit here gives me a great idea. Haven't you characters begun to dig it yet? Ebenezer Scrounge? Jacob Farley? Tiny Tom here? I think we've already begun to dig it as readers. But... I think so, yeah. Yow! I dig! Scrooge! Jacob Marley! Tiny Tim! It's just like Dickens' A Christmas Carol! Ah, that's the angle, isn't it? Okay, so the plan is set. Tonight, nasty old Mr. Scrounge will be visited upon by three spirits. After sending Bob Ratchet home on Christmas Eve, though demanding he show up for work the next day, Scrounge is visited by the ghost of Christmas past. We're assuming this is Wally West because he comes through the wall. Uh, he, he spooks Scrounge into a junkyard where he can watch Bob Ratchet digging through the garbage for spare parts with which he might use to repair Tiny Tom's wheelchair. Right there, a second spirit will call him the Ghost of Christmas Present, which is either Robin or Aqualad. Maybe it's both of them standing. Maybe he's like one of them being carried on the other one's shoulders. Possibly, I don't know. Yeah, two of them. <laughs> that, that, well, that ghost is there to direct Scrounge's attention. Who, who, who do you point that spirit? Why, it's Bob Ratchet. But I sent him home. He can't go home yet, Scrounge. You pay him so little, he must find junk to fix his crippled son's wheelchair. Tiny Tom, it's not my fault the boy can't walk. I, I... It's your fault his father must work on Christmas Day and can't afford the new electric wheelchair so Tom can move about like other children. And then... And what about your father? Your... <laughs> and what about your partner, Jacob Farley, taking all the blame for you? I mean, that's really kind of random, right? They were just talking about the ratchets. And yeah, no, all of a sudden, Jacob Farley out of nowhere? It's just like the spirit just throwing anything he can do to make uh, Scrounge feel guilty. Sure. Uh, while he vanishes, and then the ghost of Christmas future arrives, which is totally Donna Troy and a cute little Santa theme number. And she flies in just as Mr. Big and the truckers arrive, and, uh, well, they shoot her down. Wow. Really, they, they, they fire guns at her, shoot her, and she falls from the sky. Crazy, yeah. <laughs> Trucker says, we winged her! She goes, ooh. But, but what's happening? One of the drivers goes, it's one of them Teen Titans, boss. Mr. Big says, and here come the others. Clobber them, boys. Scrounge says, right where the spirits. I've been tricked. With the jig up, the Titans launch into an attack. Howling hogfish! That joke! Scatter! Wonder Chick, she'll be buried! Kid Flash zips in to clean up some of the garbage. No sweat, guys. Just a little super speed juggling. And how about that for a Christmas card? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're an audio show, but we'll mm. try to explain what happened here. Wally spelled out Merry Xmas in garbage. Yeah. I know we're impressed. Aqualad, not so much. He says... Groovy, Twinkle Toes. But who'll deliver it? King Kong? Mm -hmm. 
Suddenly, Donna is pulled skyward by one of those, you know, big magnets that we always see in junkyard scenes. Uh, it's attracted to her wristbands, apparently. Uh, the Titans attempt to free her before uh, being dragged towards some sort of a garbage tree. I guess it's like a magnet that attracts human flesh, I guess. I, I don't really understand, right? Sometimes I think I have that on the subway. Uh, people tend to <laughs> crowd true. around. Uh, then the attractor begins attracting Tiny Tom's wheelchair. It falls and gets crushed. Seeing the carnage cause, Ebenezer Scrounge's heart grows three sizes that day, and he grabs mm. Tiny Tom before he can share his old chair's fate. He turns off the machine and frees the Titans. They bonk the baddies heads together, and the day is saved. That's Hold really up. what they do. That's they, they, they bonk the heads together. The end. That's all you need to do. <laughs> Good swift knock. Three, four guys, so you get a lot of guys in one bonk. I think you can. <laughs> All the hubbub caused Scrounge to turn over a new leaf. He even goes so far as to buy Tiny Tom a brand new groovy electric wheelchair. Yes, we end up with a scene of the Titans all posed. Wonder Girl goes, Like my Christmas outfit, Twinkle Toes? Santa Scrounge replaced the, the one those hoods ripped. Kid Flash used one of my favorite adjectives. <laughs> Gear, WG! I'd hang out my stocking, but maybe he'd only fill it with junk. That kind of sounds like a euphemism, too. A little bit, right? In the yeah, modern it's... day, Scrounge yeah. says, Gold plated junk, young man. And Bob Ratchet, I'm giving you another present. A new heater in the office. Thank you, sir. You're real warm-hearted. Ha, 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 Hey, Robino, how can anybody have as warm a Christmas as we are? Let's let Tiny Tom answer that. Check, Titans. Best wishes to all for a swinging and groovy new year. And bless us, everyone. Can't say it any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I got to mention, too, uh, you know, Nick Cardi on art. It's, this is not his usual art you expect to see. The yeah. Titans all look perfect. You know, they all look correct. But it's very, it's very cartoony, especially on Scrounge and the bad guys. Yep. Uh, a very cartoony and heavily inked. Uh, thick look on it. It's really worth a look if you're a oh, fan of a yeah, Nick Carter. sure. Now, our next story is Starlight, Star Bright, Farthest Star I See Tonight. This is by Paul Levitz with art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. The story was originally published in DC Special Series, Superstar Holiday Special Number 21, from April 1980. It's Christmas Eve, 2979 AD. <laughs> And Superboy has decided to visit the Legion outpost to spread some good cheer. He runs into Monel, who's currently on sentry duty. Monel says, So you couldn't keep away after all, eh, Superboy? You know me, Monel, the original sentimental sucker. Uh, he heads right inside, right under a sprig of mistletoe, and as such, gets a peck on the cheek from Phantom Girl. The pair head into the monitor room to check out how some of their pals celebrate during the holiday season. Uh, first, we see Karate Kid and his family celebrating with a strange cardboard standee of a Christmas tree. That seems to have Captain America's shield on top. That's how it is on uh, where he's yeah. from. On Snurl, they celebrate with fireworks. On Durla, where the chameleon folks live, they don't celebrate at all. I love that. Why mention it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, 
Well, you, I would bet there's a lot of planets that don't, right? You would think, anyway. I'd say there's probably fewer that do celebrate it than don't, but anyway. And you figure, like, there's different countries on these planets, right? Exactly. Yeah, I would think there'd be other, yeah, other, other cultures, traditions, but <laughs> I just love the fact that they make us point to say, on Durla, they don't celebrate at all. Uh, and then this, this is almost even better. It's Colossal Boy. Whose home planet only celebrates Hanukkah? So it's an all, an all Jewish planet. Okay, That's I guess. Uh, yeah, don't I, you know? Don't worry about Israel trying to hit the all Jewish planet now. <laughs> anyway, Superboy is mildly irritated. There are no real Christmas trees at the outpost. Yeah, he goes. I'd trade all of your star-spanning futuristic technology for a little tinsel right now. Uh, Superboy, you know you you can go home. You realize right? that you're not you're not trapped here <laughs> in the future. Uh, he then decides to use Legion star-spanning futuristic technology <laughs> to search for the star that appeared over Bethlehem on that Christmas. You know, that Christmas. Oh, yeah, we know. <laughs> now, they check around the galaxy and come up empty. They do, however, locate a tiny planet. And so, Superboy, Lightning Lad, Wildfire, and Phantom Girl head out to investigate. We first follow Wildfire, who comes across some hungry critters. Their their food is frozen solid in the ice. Luckily, it's Wildfire, so he's got Wildfire. Yeah. <laughs> he melts the ice and helps feed the hungry little beasts. It's a good thing he came along. Wildfire says, Okay, boys, back off. This is my show now. One of the aliens goes, A carefully controlled burst of my energy powers and voila. And then Wildfire, in thought, thinks to himself, I assume those awful noises were applause, but I don't really deserve it. That food will only last days, and the ice age this planet is entering will last for centuries. Next up, we join Lightning Lad and Phantom Girl, who happen across some glomer-looking critters who are dancing around a fire. Because, you know, an ice age is coming, so you dance around fires. Right. Uh, one of the poor goofs, however, dances into the fire. Oh, no. The faded yeah. heart is all we need, right? That's, that's <laughs> it. And, uh, and so the Legionnaires are tasked with rescuing the flaming fool. Finally, we rejoin Superboy, who is trying to save a nest full of eggs from falling. He digs into the ground to procure some ore, which he shapes into a cable, with which he binds the nest into the tree. That's very simple. It was a simple <laughs> fix for him. Uh, the Legionnaires reconnoiter at a nearby overlook and try to figure out how to best aid these ailing aliens. It's pretty much exactly what you think. The three species need to join forces and share resources to survive. Superboy makes some adjustments to Legion communicator devices so that the disparate tribes can talk. I thought they all spoke the same language. I, I swear, way. I swear they all said at some point. It's about the dialect. There's little it's subtle uh, inflections, Chris, in the, mm. in the way they talk. Yeah, it's yeah. like Mandarin and uh, you know uh, Cantonese. Cantonese, yeah. exactly. Uh, we wrap up back at the outpost, and Wildfire is still skeptical about the true meaning of Christmas. Oh yeah, we forgot to mention he's been skeptical about the true meaning right. of Christmas throughout this story. That, that's his role right here. <laughs> yes. Now Superboy claims that uh, that they wouldn't have found and later saved this tiny planet if they hadn't been looking for the Christmas star, and somehow uses that as proof that Christmas has meaning. Yeah. <laughs> Wildfire <laughs> says, "Oh, come off it, Superboy. You're not still pushing the star business." Why not, Wildfire? Something brought us here to this Christmas Eve, didn't it? Well, Wildfire? Well, well? 
I'm not saying it was anything more than Lightning Lad and a bum navigator computer, Superboy. But I guess I can't say it wasn't either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> that might be, I think that's my favorite story. It's so weird. <laughs> it's so I, weird. That and the JLA one are just so bizarre. I don't know. <laughs> strange, strange. Uh, next up we have Twas the Fright Before Christmas by our friend E. Nelson Bridwell with art by Kurt Swan. Now, this story was originally published in DC Comics Presents number 67. This was March 1984, cover date. You'll never guess what night it is. Oh, I don't know. Uh, It's Christmas Eve in Metropolis. (laughs) (laughs) And Superman lands next to a bell ringer Santa Claus and a young lad with a toy dart gun. And the kid says, Okay, whiskers, stick them up. Just hand over all your money or I'll plug you. To which Santa says, Take a hike, kid, you bother me. And with that, the kid fires a plunger dart into Santa's nose, and it appears to put him into a trance. The kid, that is. The kid falls into a trance. Why else would he shoot Santa right in front of Superman? Right? I know. He must be spacing out. Seems dumb. Uh, Superman nabs the pop gun and takes an x-ray peep. He sees there are traces of radiation in the toy, which somehow hypnotizes the person who pulls the trigger. He wraps the kid up in his cape and flies him to the Fortress of Solitude, where he can give him a full examination. Using a psychosiphon... Psych siphon, sure. Sure. Uh, Superman is able to break the boy's trance. It's it's a handy thing to have at the fortress. Psych siphon. <laughs> Superman asks, "Are you all right, son? Can you tell me your name?" It, it's Timmy. Timmy Dickens. Oy. Uh <laughs> Superman asks the boy about the last thing he can remember about the toy gun. It was hidden in the tall closet with all my other presents. My folks still like to pretend Santa Claus delivers them on Christmas Eve, but I'm too old to believe in Santa, so I snuck in to check them out early. Then after pulling the trigger... I remember a blinding flash when I tried out the dart gun, and then I don't remember nothing till I woke up here. Hmm, so Timmy's too old to believe in Santa, eh? That's, uh... That's almost like the Christmas version of Chekhov's gun, isn't it? Pretty much. We're going to have to cure this kid of his Christmas <laughs> yeah. uh, humbug. <laughs> now, Superman posits putting Timmy back into the trance in hopes of deducing what the post-hypnotic suggestion was. You figure a kid's in a trance once, just, you know, dunk, dunk him again. What's the, what harm can you do? Yeah. Uh, Timmy, while in a trance, says, And when you have rescued all the money from the evil Grinch disguised as Santa Claus... You will deliver it to your local Big Scott toy store, and then our little game will be over, and you will remember nothing. It's probably worth mentioning here that Superman bad guy, the Toy Man, has a real name of Winslow Shot. Uh, Now Superman grabs the boy and starts to fly back to Metropolis. Timmy is still holding a Starship toy, which we saw him take out of his closet during that flashback scene. While in flight, the toy blasts Superman in the, fa- the blasts Superman in the face with a green ray. Superman goes, "I'll have you home before you can say." Uh, this is normally where we make some kind of a zap sound, but the ray is unfortunately silent. That's sad. Well, he'll have him home before you can say, "Arg!" Superman, what is it? Are you okay? Uh, Superman and Timmy begin to fall. As they fall, Superman thinks to himself, Ray from that toy starship made my whole body feel like lead. The pair fall into the snow, Superman correcting in mid-drop to ensure the boy landed on him. Superman, though, is KO'd. He's like Hal Jordan tripping on a bar of soap up in here. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, as Timmy tends to the man of sleep, the snow continues to pour down. 
and some elves approach. Sure, Timmy says. Oh, please, Superman, please. You've got to wake up. I don't want to die out here alone. One of the elves goes, Alone, he says. So what are we, plum pudding? He's a big one, he is. Come on, fellas, we're going to need help. The elves lift Superman's unconscious body. Boy, he weighs a ton. How come you're at the head? You always get to carry the head. Don't you guys ever go on a diet? Hey, who are you guys? Don't you know? This is the North Pole, sonny. We'll give you three guesses. We shift scenes to the big shot toy shop in Metropolis, where the toy man is watching a snow-filled monitor. Oh, fiddlesticks. I knew I should have gotten cable TV. <laughs> Though he is happy to know that Superman apparently fell to his snowy demise. Uh, we're guessing that his feed went fuzzy before the elves showed up. Yeah, it's one of these things where, you know, you can never quite get them on camera, right? Just yeah. <laughs> Sasquatch type. Anyway. Uh, back at the North Pole, Superman wakes up and finds himself surrounded by the elves from before. Yeah, he goes, where am I? Who are you guys? Isn't it neat, Superman? They found us in the storm and brought us here. But just where is here? Camera pans out a bit, revealing the jolliest, oldest elf of all. He goes, here, friend Superman, is my top secret workshop at the very heart of the North Pole. Superman goes. Workshop? North Pole? But that that's impossible. You are... I, I mean, you couldn't possibly be. See? I told you he'd never believe us, boss. My name is Kringle, friend Superman. Chris Kringle. But most folks prefer to call me... Santa Claus. Ho, 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 ho! Santa proceeds to give Superman the grand tour of his workshop, including a whole bunch of elves watching monitors to deduce who's naughty or nice. Wow, I thought only the government did that. Well, maybe they get hired out. It's also a 20th century Santa, so they got to keep up with the times, you know? It's uh, got to be able to watch these kids every minute. Uh, now, yeah. Now, on one of the monitors, we can see a very naughty Winslow shot. Yeah, the elf says, Still keeping tabs on that timing creep like you wanted, boss. Looks like he's getting up a nasty little ambush. Let me know if anything changes. Will do. Now the tour continues, and Superman watches the elves construct the newfangled toys of the day and laments the passing of simpler times and simpler toys, like the uh, holographic image transmitter he played with as a child on Krypton. You know, simple toys like that. Oh, yeah, I remember my first one. That was great. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, your first Sony. It's uh, <laughs> something you get. Now, he thinks to himself about how much fun that simple toy was and how sad he was to lose it when Krypton went boom. Also lost that day, his parents, his planet. Nothing, nothing yeah, big. But that toy, he really remembers the toy. It was <laughs> mm -hmm. huge. Uh, Superman, who still can't quite fly, hitches a ride back to Metropolis on board Santa's sleigh. They head straight for the big shot toy shop. Superman bursts through a wall and spends the next 300 or so pages fighting toys. At least it feels right? like 300. I mean, it goes on a long on. time of him fighting these toys. <laughs> I'm, I'm flipping through now. I'm still flipping through them. He's still fighting all <laughs> toys. Uh, uh, the battle comes to an end when Santa makes like that kid from Home Alone and... Hit, hits a toy man with a swinging pen can? No. And burns the toy man with a torch? No. Burns his own face with aftershave? No, he trips up the toy man with some marbles. 
did that actually happen at Home Alone? Uh, I don't know. Feels like it did. Maybe not. I don't Probably know. did. I've I don't really know. Seen it a few times. <laughs> Anywho, the day is now saved, and Santa and Superman should you know change out the post hypnotic shot toys with less harmful Santa created toys for delivery. <laughs> but now Superman and Santa share a few words when suddenly Timmy blasts him again in the face with the starship toy. What the hell, kid? Right? I mean, come on. You Super- just we just went through this. <laughs> Superman yells, "Arg!" No, not again! Superman, I'm sorry! Super! We rejoin Superman and Timmy back in the snow. It's that same scene before the elves showed up. Man, Superman, are you okay? Boy, you really had me scared there for a while. Sorry, Tim. That toy starship really packed quite a wallop. Was I out long? So was this all a dream? I guess. Uh, Well, you know, the way it ends is going to make you think, Chris. Let's find Uh, out here. Superman Uh. then takes the boy back home before heading to his own apartment at 344 Clinton. As he takes his gear off, he feels something strange in his cape pocket. Reaching in, he pulls out a Kryptonian holographic image gimmick. He flips it on, revealing Santa Claus holding a banner, which reads, Merry Christmas, Superman. Oh, all's well that ends well. Yeah, that was nice. Speaking of ending well, our final story is The Silent Night of the Batman by Mike Friedrich and Neil Adams. The story was originally published in Batman number 219, February 1970, cover date. It's Christmas Eve in Gotham. Again? Yeah. All right. The bat signal illuminates the sky, which, as is custom, Batman answers. What's the emergency tonight, Commissioner? Commissioner says... No emergency, Batman. Quite the opposite, in fact. I called you because Christmas Eve is not a night for you to be patrolling. Tis the season to be jolly. And so, Gordon escorts Batman inside, where they proceed to belt out a chorus of jingle bells. While Batman and the GCPD sing dashing through the snow, we shift to see a young boy doing the same. We're actually running through the snow, that is. Right. He's not He's not caroling, yeah. Yeah. And now he's holding a wrapped present that he had just stolen from a woman. Opening it, he finds a Batman action figure. Suddenly overcome with guilt, he returns it to the woman he stole it from. Back at the precinct, Batman is Mary Band. And I, I want to point out, it's Batman in costume. Yes. Next to, you know, officers in the uniforms. It's just something funny about him singing. So surreal. You really got to see. (laughs) Back at the precinct, Batman and his merry band sing We Three Kings. Uh, On the street, a man looks to rob a Santa Batman until he realizes that he's blind. The would-be robber drops his gun into a trash can, which doesn't seem like the smartest way to dispose of a gun, but it it is the thought that counts. Yes. Back inside, we got Cop Rock, and they're now belting out Santa Claus is coming to town. While in town, a woman laments the fact that her soldier husband won't be home for Christmas. So she heads to a bridge to kill herself? Wow. Uh, yeah. A little extreme? A little overboard there, lady. I, he, he will be uh, home eventually, we hope. Eventually. You know. <laughs> he's not dead. Uh, actually, he's, he's really not dead because he's there. Because uh, before she can make the leap, her husband pulls up behind to surprise her, luckily. Uh, it's also worth noting that the reflection of the bridge on the water looks a lot like Batman's shadow. Whoa. So basically, mm-hmm. that was about to be, the, that's the best, but could have been the worst Christmas ever, is basically what happened right? there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our next song is Silent Night, and oddly enough, it's no longer night, but 6 a.m. on Christmas morning. Good heavens, it's 6 o'clock. We've been singing here all night. 
haven't been disturbed by one report of robbery, murder, drug peddling, anything. It's like the spirit of Christmas peace took hold on everyone. But what is Christmas spirit, Batman? Might not, might it not be you or I? And Commissioner Gordon vanishes in a wisp. What? My eyes playing tricks. Why, yes, they are, Batman, because uh, next we know everything's back to normal. <laughs> Commissioner Gordon is nearby hanging up the red phone. Amazing! We've been waiting here all night, and not a single call has come in for you. It's here's the investment you put into the city has paid off tonight, giving you a night off. <laughs> and we wrap up the story with Batman batlining away. He thinks to himself, investment, spirit of Batman, Christmas spirit. Hmm. Which sort of a weird note to leave on, but uh, I don't get it. Yeah, I, the last <laughs> line, but the, the story is very good. It's really is a classic, and actually, it was uh, reprinted in the real, most recent DC Comics holiday special. That is still not worth it for just this one At story. $10, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, this uh, comes to a very special Caps Hobby hints. Uh, now, throughout the late 1960s and early 1970s, Cap's Hobby Hints was a regular feature in many DC comics. Written and drawn by Henry Boltonoff, the brother of DC editor Murray Boltonoff, these strips featured useful tips and best practices for hobbyists, allegedly shared and suggested by readers, but who knows how true that is. Uh, often we find that when the reader submissions were not actually, didn't actually happen. Uh, the strip in- included, uh, with Christmas with the superheroes, was drawn by maybe, guessing, probably Ty Templeton, though it's signed Ty Temple Tough in honor of Boltonoff. And it featured a hint on how not to hit your fingers when hammering in nails by using a comb as a guide. Yes, the first kid hammers his thumb, and he goes, Ow! The other kid says, I always had a problem with driving nails with a hammer. Mr. Cap showed me a neat way. I take a pocket comb and use it to hold the nail. That way I hit the nail, not my fingers. Always take care using household tools, though. Otherwise, you could get you could hurt yourself and others. Gee, thanks for the tip. Now that should be, that's fair enough. That's actually not a bad tip, right, Chris? No, it's a great tip. Not I love that. Word at all. Now the suggestion, like we said, these were reader suggestions. Now the suggestion for this tip was credited to a Lee Travis from Cleveland, Ohio. Now, Lee Travis was the alter ego for the Golden Age Crimson Avenger, mm. who first appeared in Detective Comics number 20. His October 1938 cover date, he's arguably, this I mean, this is before Batman, so he's arguably the first masked vigilante in comics. Now, the Crimson Avenger at this point had recently had something of a revival in the form of a four-issue limited series. They'd be written by Champions of the Golden Age, Roy and Dan Thomas, with art, at least on the first three issues, from a fella named Greg Brooks. Now, earlier this year, Brooks's wife, Elizabeth Kessler, who was a colorist for Doom Patrol Volume 2, Number 9, went missing and was eventually found by police, beaten to death by a hammer. Allegedly, she and Brooks were going through a rough patch, and she had taken up with another lover. Allegedly, mm-hmm. a certain editor at DC Comics. Ah, and so, per, per an article written by Bob Rizakis on September 16, 2002, for Comics Bulletin, at one point she returned for her things, got into an argument with Brooks, and while the baby was in the room, she bragged about what a better lover the new guy was. 
Enraged, he grabbed the hammer and struck her dead. Her body was dumped in the bathtub overnight, and at the crack of dawn, he wheeled her in a grocery cart to the construction site. This hobby hinge strip went to print, and though it initially went unnoticed, it eventually cost a certain DC editor their job. Mm-hmm. Uh, accounts from several freelancers at the time state that this editor had a hammer mounted on a plaque in their office as a gag before getting the boot. And uh, you could go do your research and find out who the editor it's is. It's not hard to find. But uh, I will say that person is still working in comics today, so mm-hmm. uh, all's well that ends weird, and uh, that does <laughs> that does bring us to the end of our DC Christmas special, which uh, for an oversized issue with oversized uh, number of creators, we sure did uh, fill this up pretty well with just straight up the comic. That I don't think we've ever done that before, you know, I the comic so. and bios, but this one is big. Do you ever see this one in the wild, Chris? I have not not often. I usually see the Christmas with the superheroes number two. Yeah, more in the wild. Eighty nine, which is which is uh, inarguably worse than this one. Yeah, because it's, it's all new stories. It's, it's hard. all uh, it's really yeah, good. it's not classics like this. It's all new stuff. But uh, this one it shows up from time to time. Uh, you might look into it. The my copy is beaten to hell. I mean, the cover doesn't even stay on it because just that's the only one I was able to find in the wild. It's yeah. uh not saying it's you know impossible to find, but uh, I don't see it often. I think this is one people kept, or they keep, you know what I mean? Like yeah, even You might if, be right. If you give up your whole thing, just like that Muhammad Ali uh, Superman sure. one, you'll find that in people's homes. They don't have one other comic, but they'll have that one. But that's one, the one, yeah. Uh, and that's what I think this is like. And this really is like just a bunch of classic stories. The, you know, the T-Titans, not the T-Titans, the uh, JLA and the Legion one. They are weird, I won't deny it. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't know, I don't know if they have a broad Christmas appeal. You know, gather around the fire, we'll tell the story of Derlin, now they don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> but uh, The Hanukkah planet. It's, what's amazing is going through the bios, it's like a list of some of the greatest creators in comics. You know Absolutely. what I mean? It really is like an all-star cast of just names you know and names that you uh, want to see. So I really almost never saw I think I've seen this more like behind the counter. Uh, sure. Pegged up or something on but, the wall. Yeah, but I, I can't imagine it's too expensive. I, it's really worth checking out if you don't have it. And uh, mm-hmm. you often see a lot of people talking about it this time of year uh, for obvious reasons. They uh, show off their the condition of their copy. A lot of them look well loved and well read. So, oh yeah, uh, it's really cool. If you own this comic or you have other Christmas comics you would want to talk about, or you just want to wish us a Merry Christmas or mm-hmm. uh, Happy New Year or whatever holidays you want to throw in there, we take it all at uh, we do. weirdcomicshistory <laughs> at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to hit us up on Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash history. Find us on Twitter at CosmicTmail, and uh, I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And you can find us our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And go check out Chris's daily writings at chrisandinfiniteearths.com, where you've been doing the 12 Days of Chris. The 12 Days of Christmas on Infinite Earths. That's yes. Christmas on Infinite Earths, <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, I guess the Chris is, is not really a, uh, you can't really flip Christmas no. with your name. It's sort of right, <laughs> just right in there. But uh, And to do that, you've been doing Christmas stories like, Wow, really running the gamut oh, yeah. all over the map with that, you know? Yeah, it's uh, the second annual 12 Days of Christmas on Infinite Earth, so it's uh, they're, they're getting harder to It's harder to by. dig up some, uh, <laughs> some books, right? Uh, well, what do you have, what'd you have up there today or yesterday? Today I did a JSA Classified. Um, 
but I say I saw a crazy one. I was like, what is this? Yeah, there, I did the spirit, um, which had nothing one. to do with Christmas. Yeah, that was, that was a crazy one. I was like, what? It looked great, but I was like, what's that done to do with Christmas at all? No Christmas. I did a Shade the Changing Man. That was a lot of fun. That was uh, weird, too, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did this uh, this Christmas with the superheroes. I did this one last year. Yeah. Uh, it was actually part of a uh, super blog team up uh, in wow. in December. It's, a, it's not not hard to find on did, on the on the site. Did you have to start writing it in October? You know, as long as oh this lord, hits. it's it's my long it's it's actually over five thousand words. Yeah. it's my longest my longest post on the on the on the blog. It's a chunky book. It took us a long time it's just big. to go through it the way we did it, and you know, writing oh, yeah. it arguably takes longer than that. Anyway, it's something new every day in the DC <laughs> Comics realm, and as we're saying, it could be from any time, any era. Uh, you gotta oh, yeah. go. You gotta go check it out every day over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. It's terrific. And we also have a weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com for the show, and uh, it's up to date with uh, the latest uh, latest stuff being on there, uh, being a little bit about the pro, including a tweet from the uh, the inker of uh, the pro, uh, Jimmy right. Palmiotti, who uh, listened, laughed, and enjoyed the program. Which really gave us a lot of relief, folks. Oh, that, that, that tickled us really well. <laughs> we yeah, were like, was... whew, okay, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Uh, yeah, so that, that was great. Um, but, you know, we definitely want to wish everyone a happy and safe holiday, whatever Absolutely. you're doing out there. Uh, you know, travel. New Year's yep. is coming up, so I uh, hope everyone has a good time with their families, not too much fighting, not too much... Uh, Overeating, or you know, at least not to a painful extent or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? If you get any good comics loot, make sure you share it with us. We want to see your, uh, we want to see your hauls, your stashes. Definitely, yeah. Please send us your pictures to any of our Twitter accounts, and uh, <laughs> we wanted to get, we want to take a look at what you, what you bro- got broken off with what this you, Christmas. What you got under the tree, exactly. Yep. <laughs> but if that's all we got for him, Chris, I think I'm gonna tell him to keep it on the treadmill merrily. See ya. And you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it.